Welcome, everyone, to the Predictably Treacherous podcast. This is the Twilight Zone Part 2 episode. I'm going to be going over Season 2 of the Twilight Zone. Uh, if you haven't listened to Season 1, or my Part 1 episode, where I, I went through Season 1, go back and listen to it now. It was awesome. Um, I brought this up in the first installment where we looked at Season 1, but it's worth restating here. So let's say a few words about the cultural and political context that the Twilight Zone was born into. While Rod Serling injected aspects of his own life experiences into the show, like boxing, military life, pilots, the unpredictability of death, there was also a political context that the show was born out of. The show began in 1959, and the cultural and political context that the show was born out of was the period directly after World War II, a period that included McCarthyism, the Cold War and the threat of nuclear holocaust, the civil rights movement, the space race, and the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. Some of the recurring themes in episodes seem like they were heavily influenced by the cultural and political context of the period, including nuclear holocaust and the tension of pending destruction. Space travel is a common theme, uh, especially uh, man as a spacefaring civilization in the future. Race is a common theme that comes up. Time travel is a very common theme. The unpredictability of death uh, and the supernatural and I would say in this season in particular, I kind of felt like consumerism was uh, something that kept coming up again and again. And as well for ratings for these episodes, and again, not rankings, but ratings, um, there's one through five. Poor is one. Fair is two. Average is three. Good is four. Great is five. And here's a note for season two. Um, there was... A little bit of uniqueness in this season. There are six episodes. This is straight from Wikipedia. Six episodes of this season were recorded on videotape. So not on film as were all other episodes. Um, it says uh, six episodes of this season were recorded on videotape at CBS Television City as a cost-cutting measure mandated by CBS programming head James T. Aubrey. They are The Lateness of the Hour. The Night of the Meek, The Whole Truth, 22, Static, and Long Distance Call. So these episodes have a visual appearance which is distinctly different from those of episodes shot on film. In addition, videotape was a relatively primitive medium in the early 60s. So the editing of tape was next to impossible. Each of the episodes was therefore, quote, camera cut as in live TV on a studio, a studio soundstage using a total of four cameras. The requisite multi-camera setup of the videotape experiment made location shooting difficult, severely limiting the potential scope of the storylines. So the short-lived experiment was abandoned. And it's true. The episodes that uh, were videotaped are awful. If the whole series was like this, I would not even watch it. These episodes were almost unwatchable. One of the episodes, it's a shame because um, I'll get into it as we go, but 
I gave the episode four out of five, or I will give it four out of five once I talk about it. It would have definitely been a five out of five episode, but it's just the, the video quality was so bad that it's hard to watch. Okay, so let's get into it. This is season two, The Twilight Zone. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land of imagination. Next stop, the Twilight Zone. Episode 1, King Nine Will Not Return. Starring Robert Cummings. A World War II captain finds himself in the desert next to his crashed plane. Where is his crew? Why are futuristic jet planes flying overhead? Oh. Oh, yeah, I remember now. At least I remember parts of it. Wing tank hit. Lost fuel all the way over. Fell behind, went off course, and bellied in. And the crew... What about the crew? Hey, did they bail out? Did I order them to bail out? No. No, I didn't. We all wrote it in, all of us. Me. Me. Well, I'm James Embry, captain. Yeah, yeah, that's who I am. Uh, Blake, co-pilot, Kransky radio operator and waste gunner. Jimenez, navigator, Connors, he was a tail gunner. Klein, he was the upper turret gunner. Now, let's see, who else, who else? Hey, you're never going to be Where Is Everybody from season one. This episode's kind of like that, but nowhere near as good. But this is kind of the the classic The Twilight Zone style episode where a guy is somewhere, he doesn't really know how he got there, he kind of has to piece it back together. He doesn't really remember the details, but they start to come to him. And then there's more to the story to that as it unfolds, and there's kind of a twist at the end. So, I mean, it's decent. Um, This isn't really my favorite episode. I don't really like the ones where they romanticize the American military uh, too much. Uh, But it's a good episode. It's pretty good. Uh, It's got a decent ending. So this uh, this Robert Cummings, the actor in this one, he has an interesting uh, Wikipedia page. Um, so according to Wikipedia, he was married five times. He changed his name. He owned a number of airplanes, all named Spinach. He had legal troubles, including a pyramid scheme and defrauding the telephone company, drug addiction, an ex-wife claims that he made disastrous financial decisions based on information received from astrology and numerology, and most scandalous of all, he was a Republican. I give this one two out of five shoes filled with sand. All right, next episode. The Man in the Bottle. A discontented curio shop owner thinks he's finally found happiness when a genie he discovers in an old bottle grants him four wishes. How do you do? Rather than go into any lengthy generic explanation of my existence, suffice it to say that I 
am a genie. Oh, that's quite correct. A genie. I can offer you four wishes with a guaranteed performance. So in this case, the shop owner does a kind deed and he's rewarded by fate with a genie that will grant, as you heard, four wishes. So like all genie parables, the wishers make varying ambitious requests that turn out differently than they had imagined. And in the end, they just want everything back the way that it was before they met the genie. So here are my thoughts. This genie story is kind of propaganda. Um, and I think it's propaganda to help you accept capitalism or the status quo. So the shop owner is struggling to scrape out a living, as do the majority of people in a capitalist system that is rigged to benefit the wealthy, right? Okay, so the genie represents the lure of an alternative socioeconomic model, um, all of which seem like good ideas, but in practice will leave you worse uh, and wishing that you had capitalism back. Now, that's not my opinion, but that is my interpretation of the commentary. Here's a glimpse into some other possible realities that you could be living. See how bad these are? Now, just keep quiet and be content with the status quo. I give this one one out of five major Nelsons. All right, next one up. Nervous man in a $4 room. Ordered to commit a murder he doesn't want to perform, a small-time hood nervously looks in the mirror and sees the man he could have been, confident, strong, and determined to get out. You talking to me? You talking to me? Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure you are. Now me in the mirror, we're having to talk. I've had it, huh? All my marbles are gone. This is how it happens. This... Yeah, this is how it happens. But you ain't lost your marbles yet, and I mean to see that you keep them. Who are you? I'm you, Jackie. And you're me. How's that? I'm part of you, Jackie. Another part of you. Don't you even remember me? You used to know me. A long time ago, Jackie. A very long time ago, you were up for grabs. You could have gone one way or the other. You could have gone my way or your way. You went your way. You know what that means, Jackie? A cheap, weak, scared, half-vulture, all-mouse. Kind of sounds a lot like this. You talking to me? You talking to me? You talking to me? Well, then who the hell else are you talking to? Talking to me? Well, I'm the only one here. A lot of the episodes in this season kind of turn out this way, where it seems like a good idea. Um, like the idea of the episode seems pretty cool. A guy's in a room. He talks to his alter ego in the mirror. Um, but in the end, there's no there there. It doesn't. It doesn't do much for you. Um, the idea is great. It just it just never comes. It just never materializes. And I kind of wonder if this episode is uh was an influence on the idea in star trek the mirror universe episodes um it is like the guy his alter ego inside the mirror it is like it's a separate person kind of like in the mirror universe episodes where 
there's there's actually like um, their equivalents are living in a different universe and they're just they're the, they look the same but they act differently it kind of felt like that a little bit anyways not a great episode it's okay um, I give it three out of five evil dr. Bashirs next episode a thing about machines Here's a summary from tvdatabase.org. A writer feels that machines in his house are conspiring against him. Uh, how are you today, Mr. Finchley? I'll answer that burning question after you tell me what's wrong with that uh, miracle of modern science. And also exactly how much this current larceny is going to cost me. Well, it's two hours labor, broken set of tubes, new oscillator and a new filter. <laughs> how very technical and how very convincing. I presume I'm to be done once again for three times the worth of the blasted thing. Last time I was over here, you'd kick your foot through the screen, remember? I have a vivid recollection, thank you. The set was not working properly. I tried to get it to do so in a perfectly normal fashion. You know what makes a show seem old? When they have a scene where uh, a guy is over repairing someone's television set. Yeah, so this guy seems to have a, an adversarial relationship with um, technology, uh, specifically the technology in his house. Um, I would have listed the summary as follows. An elitist prick gets drunk, then the machines in his home chase him around, and finally his car forces him into the pool and he dies. In the end, we're not really sure whether it actually happened or if he was just drunk and imagining it. I guess the theme for this one was consumerism is killing you. I give this one two out of five elitist pricks. Next up, The Howling Man. A man on a walking trip of Europe gets caught in a storm. He finds a remote monastery that contains a prisoner. You see, Mr. Ellington, he made the same mistake that you have made. He underestimated me. He thought he would have no difficulty in tempting the old fool. But I had him in a cell before he knew what happened. But if he's the devil, how do you keep him locked up? With the staff for truth. The one barrier he cannot pass. Tell me, how did you recognize him? He doesn't look evil. The devil hath power to assume a pleasing shape. I had seen him before in all parts of the world, in all forms and guises. Wherever there was sin, wherever there was strife, wherever there was corruption and persecution, there he was also. Sometimes he was only a spectator, a face in the crowd. But always, he was there. Yeah, so this is a really good one. This is a good episode. Um, a lot of the camera work is crooked in this one, uh, as if that's supposed to be like uh, crooked, like someone's evil, like, quote, crooked. Uh, the prisoner in this is the devil, and he convinces the man who takes shelter in the storm in the monastery, he convinces the man to let him out of his prison cell, and the man basically is letting evil back into the world. So that's kind of a cool idea. I like that. This one stars 
character actor John Carradine. He plays uh, the the head monk. So he's actually the father of David Carradine. And he was uh, a great character actor. And he was a part of Cecil B. DeMille's stock company and later John Ford's stock company. But I know him best from uh, The Grapes of Wrath, where he played the father in The Grapes of Wrath. If you haven't seen Grapes of Wrath, definitely see that. It is brilliant. Giving this one four out of five character actors. Next one, The Eye of the Beholder. A young woman undergoes experimental treatments, in quotes, in an attempt to make her appear, quote, normal. One of the alternatives, just in the event that this last treatment is not successful, this is simply to allow you to move into a special area in which people of your kind have been congregated. People of my kind? <laughs> congregated? Oh, you mean segregated? You ain't in prison, don't you, doctor? You're talking about a ghetto, aren't you? A ghetto designed for freaks. Miss Tyler. Now, the state is not unsympathetic. Your presence here in this hospital is proof of that. It's doing all it can for you. But you're not being rational, Miss Tyler. Now, you know you can't expect to live any kind of a life among normal people. I could try. I could wear a mask or this bandage or I wouldn't bother anybody. I'd just go my own way. I'd get a job, any job. I... Who are you people anyway? What is this state? Who makes all these rules and traditions and statutes? The people who are different have to stay away from the people who are normal. The state isn't God, doctor. Miss Tyler, please, please. The state is not God. It hasn't the right to penalize somebody for an accident of birth. It hasn't the right to make ugliness a crime. Yeah, this is a very good episode. Um, so there's a patient in a hospital, and her she's all bandaged up. And you heard her in that quote, she's freaking out. Um, the doctor's saying, um, you know, we'll try and make you normal again. You don't see the faces of any of the doctors or the nurses or anybody else. They're all in darkness. Um, until the big reveal at the end when you see the patient's face. And when the patient's face is revealed, um, she is very beautiful and perfectly normal looking. And then you see the doctors and the nurses, and they all have these ugly pig faces that are really strange. So you can see how this one, um, the themes uh, are kind of like conformity to the norm, uh, to the status quo. So I guess this one is its kind of about racism or bigotry and how arbitrary it is. Next one up, Nick of Time, starring William Shatner. Not to be confused with the Nick of Time, the Johnny Depp 1995 movie, which I inexplicably saw in the theater. A superstitious newlywed becomes obsessed by a penny fortune-telling machine when he and his new wife are stranded with car trouble. Well, what have we got here? The Mystic Seer. The what? 
Well, let's try it, shall we? Have you got a penny, honey? I think so. What'll we ask it? I don't know. Here. I got it. What? Does anything exciting ever happen around here? It is quite possible. Yeah, so this was a good episode. I mean, I don't have a ton to say about it. It's not that deep or anything. I guess the main theme is like superstition. You know, don't get caught up in it. Don. Don. What? Let's go. No. Are you just going to stay here? I don't know. Oh, sweetheart, listen to me. Please, if you love me, just listen to me. No, you listen to me. This machine is predicting our future. Do you think I could just walk away from it? I'm not talking about that machine anymore. I'm talking about you. Are you just going to sit here and let that... that... that thing run your life? Run my life? Run my life? Isn't that exactly what you're letting it do? Maybe I'm missing the point. Maybe this is, um, you know, a broader comment on the pervasiveness of gambling and superstition in society. And uh, I guess the pervasiveness of people tending to chalk things up to outside forces that they don't have control over. Maybe it's a comment on how people should have a more active role in their own lives. Like, um, you know, the, the people have agency and they have more control over their own lives than they're willing to admit. Three out of five hammy actors. They've lost their crew and on manual. Who's in control of that bucket, Lieutenant? Some guy by the name of Ted Stryker, sir. Ted Stryker? Do you know him, sir? Never heard of him. That's not exactly true. We were like brothers. We flew together during the war. We were close, we were close, until... Until, sir? Until that day over Macho Grande. Over Macho Grande, sir? No, I'm afraid I'll never get over Macho Grande. Forget it, Lieutenant. It wasn't a pretty picture. Let's go. Next one up, The Lateness of the Hour, starring Inger Stevens. Dr. Lauren enjoys the faultless robot servants he has invented. His daughter, however, feels imprisoned by them and soon learns how right she is. The optimum temperature and the fireplace designed for perfect heat radiation. The chairs for maximum comfort. Oh. And the windows for the most efficient light and proper ventilation. Oh yes, and the ceilings for the most desirable acoustical qualities. Everything built to perfection, Father. Boy, that Ingar Stevens. They just don't make a lot of women who look like that anymore. Uh, too bad it's such a crap episode. This is one of those ones that I mentioned at the top of this episode. Six episodes of this season were recorded on videotape. This is one of them, and it is terrible. It's atrocious. It's unwatchable. The actual episode itself isn't that great either. Basically, she's a robot, and she doesn't know it. And then she comes to realize she is a robot, and it's like, okay, fine. One of the things that did come out of this episode was the unexpected and creepy 
orgasm noises that the mother would make when she was getting a massage by one of the robots. That's it. See, I guess the mother's orgasmic response to the massage was meant to be indicative of the overindulgence of having the robots, uh, I don't know, catering to your every whim. Um, and the daughter in particular just couldn't couldn't stand when her mother was getting the, mas- the orgasm massage and uh, she like yelled for her to stop it a couple times. It, it was gross and over the top, but yeah, I guess that was the point, right? that they were being extremely overindulgent and the daughter was like, look, can we just be normal? Like get rid of the servants. Um, let's have a normal life. And that's when she realizes, or she comes to realize that she's an actual robot too. Um, so she can never be a part of that life. One out of five robots. Is that a Midwest thing? Like why do people like, um, why do people say robot? We're about to discover that sometimes the product of man's talent and genius can walk amongst us untouched by the normal ravages of time. These are Dr. Lorenz robots, built to functional as well as artistic perfection. But in a moment, Dr. William Lorenz, wife and daughter, will discover that perfection is relative, that even robots have to be paid for, and very shortly will be shown exactly what is the bill. Next one up, The Trouble with Templeton. Booth Templeton is an aging actor who longs for the old days when his wife was alive. Miraculously, he has given a sobering glimpse of the past he holds so dear. Hey, Mr. Templeton! You what year are... is this? 1927. Say, you're not trying to kid me, are you, Mr. Templeton? Most assuredly, I'm not. Your wife just phoned and said for you to meet her at Freddy Iacchino's. My wife? But Laura's dead. Well, she's the best-looking ghost I ever saw, Mr. Templeton. No offense, of course. Where's Laura? Where did you say she's waiting for me? At Freddy Iacchina's, just around the corner. So the main character, Booth. Booth Templeton. Great name. He's currently married to a younger woman who is indiscreet with her infidelities. But he remembers fondly when he was married to his wife, who is now dead. Um, he married her when she was 18, and she died when she was 25. So he was a lot younger than two. Now he's an old man. He's like in his 60s. He goes back in time, um, and his wife is young now, but not how he remembers her. And she actually, they get into an argument. She tells him to get lost because he's acting like a jerk. Um, and the scene kind of plays out. And you realize, oh, it's it's on a stage or something like that. Because the background kind of fades to dark and the characters put their heads down. Um, like the people in the scene. Um, so, yeah, the kind of the, the extras. They just kind of stop acting and everything fades to dark in the background. And then suddenly Booth is back in his own time and he's regained his confidence. So here's what Rod said. Mr. Booth Templeton, who shared with most human beings the hunger to recapture the past moments, the ones that soften with the years. But in his case, the characters of his past blocked him out and sent him back to his own time, which is where we find him now. Mr. Booth Templeton, 
who had a round-trip ticket into the Twilight Zone. Yeah, so the episode's okay. I give it two out of five thespians. Next up, a most unusual camera. Chester Dietrich and his wife Paula, after burglarizing a curio shop, end up with a camera that takes pictures of events five minutes into the future. 490 to win, 1580 and 670. In just a few minutes, the second race of the day, the most tenderest handicap. And now, here Shut comes Hudson into the winner's huh? circle with a very fine oh, yeah. jockey, Harry Finney. I got it. I've got it. I've got it. What is it, Chester? This thing takes pictures of things that happen five minutes before they happen, but they happen. Now, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to take a picture of the winning board at the racetrack before the race. The winning board before the race. Get it? No, I don't get it. Oh. <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a minute. We take a picture of the winning board and then we look at it. Oh, we're getting through to you, Woodward. Look. Look, we take a picture of the winning board. There's nothing on it because the race hasn't been run yet. But we got a little camera here that takes pictures five minutes before they happen. So the picture has the winning numbers on the board. We know what horse won. We know how much he paid. Now do you get it? Yeah! <laughs> now I get it! <laughs> Yeah, so this is a really good episode. I like this one a lot. Um, I would say kind of the theme of this episode is um, fate. And kind of more specifically for these characters is like the specific type of fate is like screwing up a free lunch. You know, these are the type of characters where no matter what you throw at them, no matter what good fortune, they will find a way to screw it up. So in the episode... They have a camera, takes pictures of five minutes in the future, and it seems pretty clear-cut. Like, they'll go and gamble on horse races, make a ton of money, and they totally screw it up um, in the end. And it's the way they screw it up, too, is is kind of over-the-top ridiculous. Like, they end up falling out of the window of their apartment building. All right, next one up, The Night of the Meek. A down-on-his-luck department store Santa Claus discovers a bottomless sack of toys. What's your name, little boy? Percival Smithers. What do you want for Christmas, Percival? A new front name, Percy. I think we have it. What's wrong? Santa Claus is loaded! Oh, you've got some nerve! You ought to be ashamed! So this one's sort of an interesting episode. Um, at first, I hated it. Um, it was I found it kind of unwatchable, and partly because it's um, it's one of the ones, one of the six episodes from the season that was done on videotape. So the video quality is extremely poor; it just looks cheap. Um, so I had trouble watching this one, but I just kind of forced myself to rewatch it, and I had some other thoughts on it. So it was it's a little bit better than what that what I had originally thought. For one thing, um, the Santa is a drunk, which is pretty tropey, but um, he's not drunk because like he's just a bum and all he can do is be a mall Santa. He actually says in it um, he, he drinks because 
why can't the children really get the gifts they want? So the kids are all coming up to him like orphan kids and poor kids are coming up to him and saying, oh, I want a dolly and I want a, I want a, uh, a toy car or an army man or something. And he wants to give the kids these things. So he really wants to do the things that, that he wants to make the kids happy. So that's one thing. And then what happens is he finds a magic sack where there are gifts in it. In fact, whatever he reaches in and grabs out of the sack is the exact perfect gift that the person asking wants. So he kind of becomes Santa. And then at the end of the episode, um, some sleigh shows up and takes him away. And, and so it turns out like he is Santa. Like the elf was acting uh, on the sleigh was acting like, um, okay, Santa, are you ready to go? Like as if it was... It was known that he already is Santa. So that was sort of interesting, kind of a different little take. But um, yeah, overall, though, it's hard to watch because the video quality is so poor. So I don't know. I'm raising it up a bit. Let's say two out of five drunken Santas. All right. Next one up, um, dust. So after selling the rope for a hanging... A conscienceless peddler tries to sell the condemned man's father a bag of magic dust. Ha <laughs> ha! Young Mr. Gallegos, I believe. Now this is a very special day, isn't it? Now let's see, what is this special day, eh? Ah, now I remember, it has just this moment come back to me. Today you're gonna get hanged! <laughs> Today, young Mr. Gallegos, killer of children, dances on the gallows. <laughs> yeah, so this is a decent episode. Um, there's a couple readings on this one. So first, um, a young man is awaiting his hanging for the crime of accidentally killing a child with his horse and buggy when he was drunk. Now, the young man, he seems otherwise like, like a harmless young man, like he just made a mistake. He seems... Uh, like uh, re remorseful of what happened. Um, the sheriff seems very upset. Um, he doesn't want the young man to die. He thinks there's been enough death. The young man's father certainly doesn't want the young man to die. He spends the whole episode desperately trying to save his son. And the deceased little girl's parents seem like they just want to mourn and they don't show any animosity towards the young man waiting the execution. Now the peddler in the episode is gleeful he sells the rope to the sheriff for the hanging and he sells a bag of magic dust to the young man's desperate father and throughout he seems to be encouraging the process by verbally harassing the young man in his cell and expressing condolences to the mourners the peddler is constantly marketing and selling to everyone so two things happened at the end of the episode. The peddler's products failed, okay, the rope broke, and then the magic dust that was fake, it actually worked. And as a result of these failures, the young man was set free. And see, I wonder if this is um, a comment on, bear with me, the rise of consumerism and corporate influence in our daily life with firms marketing marketing to you out of both sides of their mouth and selling low-quality goods. So that's kind of my reading on that. The other, I think, more standard reading is that 
um, the peddlers are racist and the young man waiting execution is uh, Hispanic. And he seems to be saying like, uh, he, he makes a couple comments about dirty foreigners or something like that. Um, but everyone else in the episode seems like that's not an issue for them. So it's somewhat of a comment on on uh, the hatred of foreigners or, or the fear of foreigners as well. I like my reading better. Okay, next episode, Back There. It's April 14th, 1961. Peter Corrigan and friends are discussing time travel, of course, at their men's club. Corrigan suddenly becomes dizzy. When his head clears, he has somehow traveled back to April 14th, 1865, the date of Lincoln's assassination. Knowing what is about to happen, he tries to warn everyone at Ford's Theater before it's too late. Thank you, William. Yes, sir. Good. Now, what's your point? That if it were possible for a person to go back in time, there'd be nothing in the world to prevent him from altering the course of history? Is that it? That's right. Let's say, Corrigan, that you go back in time. It's October 1929, the day before the stock market crashed. Now, you know that on the following morning, securities are going to tumble into an abyss. Now, using this prior knowledge, there's a hundred things you could do to protect yourself. But I'd be an anachronism. I really don't belong back there. You could sell out the day before the crash. But what if I did and started the crash earlier? Now, history tells us that on October 24th, 1929, the bottom fell out of the stock market. That's a fixed date. It exists as an event in the history of our times. It can't be altered. And I say it can so here are my thoughts on this one. A bunch of elitist pricks are sitting around a men's club discussing time travel, or rather whether certain events were destined to happen or whether they could have happened differently. So I'm not sure why this is even a discussion. This is effectively debating whether the universe is causal or not. Like if you admit that the universe is causal then you have to concede that if preceding events changed, then the outcome would also change. That is, unless there's some sort of like higher power that's intervening to orchestrate a specific outcome, or like, you know, that higher power is like God or destiny or something like that. So regardless, the younger of the elitist pricks leaves the club and he goes back in time uh, he just he gets dizzy and suddenly he finds that he's back in time and he attempts to change the past, um, but is unable to affect the outcome of Lincoln's assassination. However, when he returns, he discovers that his actions did change the present in that one of his elitist pricks, uh, the friends at the table, um, before he went back in time, that guy was an attendant at the men's club like a waiter but now that he's back from being in the past that guy he altered events in the past and that guy became a millionaire so now he's an elitist prick at the uh at the club now um i don't know i guess the message overall here is like uh well it's the theme is time travel and you can I guess the debate on whether you can change the past or not. Like I said at the beginning, if you believe in causality, then yes, you can alter events if you were to go back in time and do different things. Um, okay, I think what's a little under the surface here is a theme, though, 
um, this suggests to me that uh, that this is a commentary on wealth and status. Um, so, it's specifically, this episode seems like it's a commentary that um, the wealth and status that you have in your life is mostly due to things that happened in the past and were not in your control. So the wealthy guy at the table had absolutely zero to do with him being a wealthy man. So that feels like the greater commentary to me that um, the people are who they are largely because of things that happened that were not in their control or that they had very little control or agency over. Next episode, The Whole Truth. A peculiar Model A automobile compels a used car dealer to tell only the truth. <laughs> We're just looking. Well, that's what we want you to do. Nobody pushes you around here. No, see, young man around here, you can pause, exhale, check, recheck, think, peruse, contemplate, wade through, thumb over, dip into. Be my guest, folks. <laughs> This one's really hard to watch. Um, it was another one of the ones that was done, uh, that was recorded on videotape. So the, the quality is horrendous. Uh, not only that, but it's just it's just such a shitty episode. It's sort of um, interesting that all the episodes, I think, except for one, that were done on videotape, they're not just poor quality. Like, they're really bad episodes, too. And I wonder if... Um, there was some coordination going on there that they actually decided if we're going to do this experiment with some of these episodes, we're going to do it on the shitty episodes. <laughs> Probably not. Uh, that's, that's too like 40 chess, you know, it's probably not what was happening. But anyways, this episode, it's, um, I was totally distracted by actor Jack Carson's huge hands. He looks like Wreck-It Ralph. Um, they're ginormous. The episode is terrible. I don't know. There's a used car salesman. He gets a car. He buys a car off a guy who's trading it in. And the guy tells him, hey, it's haunted. and Whatever. It just makes him tell the truth. It, it's terrible. I give this one out of five tired tropes. Next episode, um, The Invaders. An old woman in an isolated farmhouse encounters tiny, hostile aliens. This is one of the out-of-the-way places, the unvisited places, bleak, wasted, dying. This is a farmhouse, handmade, crude, a house without electricity or gas, a house untouched by progress. This is the woman who lives in the house, a woman who's been alone for many years, a strong, simple woman whose only problem up until this moment has been that of acquiring enough food to eat a woman about to face terror, which is, even now, coming at her from the Twilight Zone. Right. So I included the Rod Serling monologue. Um, I usually don't do that. I do a clip from the episode. But I did that this time because this episode has no dialogue. So it's one character. It's a woman, seemingly a woman. She lives in a farmhouse. And... Um, some alien invaders come and invade her farmhouse and they're small little robots and they chase her around and she chases them out of the house and uh 
there is the the alien ship does have a communication that goes out and it's in English and you hear it but um there's no actual dialogue like between characters or anything so that's why I included the Rod Serling monologue this is a really good episode um I'll just give it away you got to watch it anyway um the saucer the alien ship it reads on the side of it at the end of the episode spoiler here big time it says US Air Force space probe number 1 so i don't know i think this this episode kind of feels like um it's either a critique of american imperialism or and or a warning about what lies out ahead in space um you know where that imperialism will lead to that exploration, um, what could be out there. Um, and it's kind of just a cool story. So uh, I'm giving this one uh, five out of five space forces. All right, next one up, a penny for your thoughts. A lucky flip of a coin seems to give a mild-mannered bank clerk the power to read minds, but he soon learns that you can't believe everything you read. You miserable, dirty, low-down. Get Liz and Eddie split up. Then Liz can marry Rock and Eddie can marry Tuesday. Uh-huh. Oh, dear. Terribly sorry. If he hits me, I'll die. So we have uh, Dick York in his second Twilight Zone appearance. Um, so, of course, Dick York is the guy from uh, Bewitched. Um, he's all right. Apparently Wikipedia said he was a big schmoker, like two or three packs a day or something like that. And he, he, uh, I think he died of lung cancer. Anyways, it's off topic. Yeah. The episode, uh, it was okay. You know, nothing great. Um, he flips a coin, the beginning into like this wooden box to pay for his newspaper. It lands on its, on its side, like upright. So the coin is vertical in the box. And uh, the paper guy says, hey, it's your lucky day. And suddenly Dick York can read people's minds. And it's it's not voluntary. Like he walks close to someone and he can hear their thoughts, just like you would be able to hear them talk. Um, so little clip there kind of illustrates it. Basically, he goes to the bank um, where he works. And, you know, it's just him what happens to him after that. Like someone he misunderstands someone's thoughts that that the person is planning a, to rob the bank but they're not they're just like you know they're just shit posting in their brain so they weren't actually going to do anything anyways he doesn't use it for anything good like finding out what women would sleep with them and uh or you know scamming someone out of money and then eventually at the end of the day like his his powers go away um i think he flips another coin in the box and it it knocks over the vertical one and he no longer has the power. Anyways, it's just, I don't know. It's kind of, it's kind of crappy. It's, it's a low tier twilight zone episode. Um, so just watch it once, but rating two out of five Darren's. Okay. Next episode. Um, it's called 22. So miss Powell has a recurring nightmare about room 22 in a morgue. You say it always happens in perfect chronology. You wake up, you feel thirsty, you reach for the glass, you hear the clock ticking loudly, 
very loudly. Yeah, this is another one of those ones that's um, uh, done on videotape, so the video quality is terrible. It's hard to get into it. It's also just the episode itself. It's more like a thriller type thing. Um, it doesn't feel Twilight Zone-y. This episode, last episode, they don't really feel like prime Twilight Zone. So basically in this one, um, the woman has this recurring dream of she gets out of bed and in a hospital and she goes down the hall and goes to this room 22 and it's a morgue. And then um, she can't shake it. It just keeps happening. And then when she finally leaves the hospital, you know, she's kind of unconvinced. But um, basically the dream turns out to be a premonition because there's some plane that's like she doesn't get on. I don't even remember the details, but it's 22. It's like flight 22 or something like that. Oh, that's right. The nurse who um, opens up the doors in the morgue in her dream is the flight attendant. So she realizes that she's going to die. And I, I think she doesn't get on the plane and it crashes and it's fine, whatever. It's more like uh it's more like they took a snippet out of an Unsolved Mysteries episode or something like that um, and made it into an episode, even though it's way before Unsolved Mysteries. But that's fine. So, yeah, I give this one two out of five Robert Stacks. Okay, next episode, The Odyssey of Flight 33, another number in the title. A commercial aircraft mysteriously travels back through time. Well, how are we doing back there, Janie? Oh, your passengers are highly content. But on behalf of the stewardesses, I would like to respectfully request that we get to New York as soon as possible. One's going to the opera, two have heavy dates, and the fourth is available to any honorable and single male crew member. Oh, hold on a minute. You feel anything? Feel anything? No, what do you mean? I don't know, I felt something. Funny, like the sensation of speed. I can't put my finger on it. I guess I'm getting old. True airspeed 470, we're level. You suppose we picked up a tailwind? Yeah, maybe those jet streams are tricky. It's that crazy feeling I can't shake. You can't feel a tailwind, but I feel something. Everything looks fine. Yeah, so another Unsolved Mysteries episode here. Um, you get the plane, and everybody talks like they're in an Aaron Sorkin screenplay. And basically, um, it goes through some sort of time warp or something. They said the jet stream, and it was fast. And next thing you know, they're back where the dinosaurs are. And then they go back up into the jet stream to try and return home somehow. And they end up in, uh, like, 1939. So close, but not exactly. And then by the end of the episode, this was good. Um, they didn't get back. They just were going back to the jet stream to try again. And that was where the episode ended. So I like that part. Um, I'm going to give this one two out of five Aaron Sorkins. Okay. Oh, and it didn't really. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't even think I've ever seen anything by Aaron Sorkin. I'm basing this on clips cheesy dialogue clips that i've uh seen on twitter kind of reminded me of that writing anyways next episode mr dingle the strong 
Martians give Luther Dingle the strength of 300 men. What is vacuum cleaners? Light as a feather. Oh, not the machine isn't right. No, sir, it's one of the lightest machines on the market. And sir, I tell you, it's a handy-dandy Jim Cracker A1 piece of merchandise. Guaranteed to lighten the load and lengthen the life of that wonderful partner in the American home, the housewife. And here's another clip. Had enough? Most inferior. We give him the strength of 300 men, and he uses it for petty exhibition. Give him 20 or 30 seconds more, then remove the power. Excellent idea. And I think we should be off. Three planets on tomorrow's itinerary. One should be particularly interesting. Contains only females. Good Lord. Don Rickles and what's the other guy's name? Burgess Meredith. I can't stand both of these guys. Um, this isn't funny. This just it just doesn't age well. Um, I don't think this was this would have ever been funny. I I don't see how it could have. Such a weird episode too. There's two Martians. Well, they're they're one person. They're like conjoined. I don't know. It's hard to describe. You just kind of have to see it. There's a Martian that gives them gives Burgess Meredith strength. I don't know. Just to watch what happens. And then by the end of the episode, the Martians are like, let's just, this is ridiculous. We gave him strength, and he just uses it for parlor tricks. Um, so we're going to take it away. And that's it. So what was the theme of this one? Um, psh, humanity's stupid? I don't know. Yeah, I guess. I mean, look, okay. Um, so they gave someone a great gift, a great fortune, and he squandered it away and wasted it. Um you know, maybe this is how Rod Serling viewed the contemporary generation in the late 50s and early 60s. Yeah. All right, next episode, Static. Ed Lindsay hates television, so he gets his old radio out of the basement of the boarding house where he lives. He soon finds he can receive programs from the past when he's alone. Getting sentimental over you, Tommy Dorsey and his orchestra bid you all a very pleasant good night, direct from the Princeton campus in a broadcast of the Summer Swing Festival. And listen to that applause. But before we sign off, we invite you to stay tuned for Major Bowes at his famous amateur hour. Yeah, so the idea with this one is that um, he... Ed Lindsay, whatever his name is, um, when he's alone in his room and he turns on the radio, he can get the past, like radio that he used to listen to in 1940 or so, and it's currently 1960, so it's it's from the past. Um, but then whenever anyone comes into his room, it turns into static, and so they don't hear it, so they don't they think he's just full of crap. Um, and the woman who is in there, she kind of explains what's going on and that 
Ed and her uh, met in the boarding house uh, 20 years earlier, and they were in love, and they were going to get married, but things happened in their lives, and it just never worked out. They never got married, and they drifted apart, and now they're... Um, now they barely speak at all, and um, she had, she explains that he the guy is regretting it that he regrets uh, what happened and he wants in his mind he wants to go back to that time and and relive it because that was his happiest moment and so that turns out to be sort of true. Now later on, um, this part really irritated me is that the woman and this other guy who lives in a boarding house they're like meddling and they think oh this is not good that he's reminiscing about the past. And they actually um, took his radio away from him when he wasn't home and sold it to some junk dealer. It's like, what are you doing? My, like, what is with this authoritarian behavior? Um, you're like, oh, well, he's enjoying this. We don't like it. Uh, we're going to take it away from him. Okay, like, come on. You have no right to do that. Anyways, um, so he gets it back. And then in the final scene... He gets the radio back from the junk dealer and he plays it again and he gets the old radio station he likes. And when he turns around, the woman's there uh, or comes into his apartment and she's young, like how she was 20 years ago. And then it shows him and he's like how it was 20 years ago. So I don't know. It's okay. I like the idea. I didn't really like the execution of this episode, but it's also on that really bad film, The or sorry, not film. It was taped. So it's one of the six episodes from the season that looks horrible. Um, so I give this one one out of five fast-talking high pants. Next episode, The Prime Mover, starring Dane Clark and Christine White. Ace Larson discovers his business partner, Buddy Ebsen, has the ability to control objects with his mind. The pair head to Vegas to win big. Are you listening to me, baby? This is Ace talking to you, your old lover boy, Ace. We've been together a long time, you and me. And I've been real good to you, haven't I? I fed you, I took care of you, gave you everything you wanted, right? Right? Okay. Well, I think it's about time you started paying off. Oh, you mud... All right. All right, sweetheart, you've had your fun. Now let's get down to serious business. Although I'm warning you, you pay off or you get out! Yikes. Yeah, so that was a clip of Ace. Um, and he was uh, talking to a slot machine that's inside. Okay, so he runs a cafe with um, cafes called like Happy Days, D-A-Y-Z, Cafe or something like that. And it's him, Ace, his girlfriend, Kitty, and the other cook there, his name is Jimbo. And they appear to own the place, Jimbo and Ace, uh, yet they're somehow broke. Anyways, uh, Ace is a little degenerate gambler and seems like a bit of a prick, too. Um, he doesn't treat Kitty very well, and Jimbo seems like an overly nice guy. Anyway, so Jimbo, there's an accident outside, and Jimbo uses his special powers to move a car to save some people. And Ace realizes, hey, we could use this to go to Vegas and gamble. 
Um, so they do. They go to Vegas. They gamble. And then um, they win a bunch of money. But then Ace gets way too greedy. And then they, they blow it all in the end. Jimbo actually um, uh, deliberately sabotages the final bet. And, of course, Ace is just doing double or nothing the whole time. So at the end, they just they lost one bet and it's all gone. And then Jimbo convinces Ace that like, hey, Kitty was um, is way more important than all this money. So let's just you should just marry her. Make sure you go after her. Um, so, yeah, that's where we're at. So these this this one, the way it was written. I mean, these these characters are just just caricatures of real people like um, what am I saying? Like um, there's there's ridiculous stereotypes of real people. Like, I don't think there's anybody who's actually like this, but, and I was thinking about it. I was like, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of shitty. I don't really like that. Um, there are two stereotypes, but as well, I think I realized that if you're writing, if it's a little episode like this, it's 20 minutes. You, you can't, you can't have subtle and nuance like you could if it was, um, if it was a series, like I was thinking about Deep Space Nine and how good, some of the characters were and uh in some episodes like in the pale moonlight um the episodes are just so good and the characters are really subtle and complicated and um but that's not fair for me to judge a twilight zone episode like that because that's coming from a series where they've had the entire series to to build out the the depth in the characters so they can create an episode where characters are uh, behavior is morally ambiguous and maybe contradictory to what that character is, but it's more subtle and nuanced than that, and it's deeper. This is just one episode, and um, there is no, like, this is the first time I've seen these characters. So they kind of have to write them as just walking stereotypes. So um, that's fine. Anyways, beyond that, this seems like another, um, another one where Rod Serling is uh, commenting on People who are given a precious gift and they end up blowing it like they they just um, they they ruin the special gift that could have provided for them. They got too greedy. And I wonder again if this is the ongoing like if in this season he's really trying to hammer at this theme that um, his contemporary view of of culture and, and you know people in, in that era and and that's how they handled like the post-war boom and they've been handed a gift like there's a lot of everything's going pretty well going pretty easy but they're blowing it um i wonder if it's if it's meant to be that i guess to a certain extent anyways this episode it's okay i give it a i don't know two out of five made-up names next episode the long distance call starring bill Mummy and Philip Abbott. A young boy finds he can communicate with his dead grandmother through a toy phone. Who are you? I'm your son, Chris. Your son. No. No. My son was taken away from me by a woman. This is my son now, Billy. My son. What's the matter, Grandma? It will be so lonely. I wish you could go with Grandma, Billy. Where? Far away, Billy. It 
Together, the two of us. Just you and me, Billy. No one else. Just you and me. This episode is so much more than the summary gives it credit for. The summary is a young boy finds he can communicate with his dead grandmother through a toy phone. It's so much more than that. So the grandmother, um, she's all over this boy. Like she loves him. He just seems like it just seems like he's the world to her. Uh, she's totally smothering. And the mother and father give each other the eye all the time. Like. Like, ooh, she's just spreading on a bit thin, or she's trying to drive a wedge between us and, and our kid, and by the thing she says. Anyways, early on, it's the boy's birthday, and uh, the grandmother gives him this toy phone and says, you can talk to me anytime you want. And they've already been telling the boy, like, the grandmother's sick. And then suddenly she looks very sick, and they take her upstairs, and then you kind of, a doctor comes in, and then... um. The doctor's like, oh, no, she's she's not doing well. Anyways, they go up to see them, the, the grandmother. They take the little boy in, and that's what the clip's from that I just played. I edited the clip a bit, but basically the grandmother's like, I don't, you know, my her real son, she's like, I don't have a son. A woman took him away, and the camera shows the, the wife, and she's like, oh. And, um, you know, a woman took him away, and now Billy is my son. So she has totally transferred her affection for the uh, her grandson. And um, after she dies, the grandson, it's a great episode, the grandson starts talking to her um, using a toy phone. And the grandmother, it gets super dark. She tells, you don't hear it, but she's telling the boy to kill himself so that he can be with her. And uh, so the boy tries to like run out in front of traffic Super dark episode. Um, it's good. It's very, very good. Uh, it would be a 5 out of 5 episode easily, but I'm giving it 4 out of 5 um, beyond the graves because this one was shot on videotape. Oh, it's wasted. It just looks... It's almost unwatchable. Like If you just watch a few seconds of it, you might turn it off. Um, but it's worth watching all the way through. So 4 out of 5. Okay, next episode. A hundred yards over the rim. In eighteen forty seven, a Western settler sets out to find medicine for his dying son and stumbles into modern day New Mexico. Did you see it? See what? That, that thing, that that, that monster like thing that came at me. Monster? It almost almost hit me. Well, mister. I never saw anything. If there was anything, never got to hear. Oh, no. It was just a, a mile or two down the road. You mean the truck? The truck? Are you all right? I mean, uh, how long have you been out there in the desert? Oh, well, almost a year. That is, almost a year since we left Ohio. One of the wagons was burned by the Indians, and the other two went back. Yeah, well, uh, why don't you come on inside for a while, huh? 
All right, so this one, uh, not a bad episode. It's pretty good. There's a pilgrim guy, and it's in 1847, and he's looking for water, sunsick, and they're in a wagon. The sun's in a wagon, he's sick, and he goes over the rim, like over this hill of sand, and he's looking for some water, some game. They need something, man. The sun's dying. And when he goes over the rim... He's suddenly in 1961, although he doesn't know it yet, but there's like a highway and he doesn't know what that is. So he goes out onto the highway and makes his way to a cafe. All these episodes, you know, there's like cafes in the middle of nowhere on these desert highways. And I mean, you'd think something like a cafe, a gas station thrives on, it's a volume business, you know? Um, but the, it's like deserted, like the owner and his wife, of course, it's a, it's a couple who own it They're Um, she's working inside and he, the, the, the guy, he's kind of standing outside when the pilgrim walks up and he's, he's kind of the owner guy. He's kind of chuckling at the pilgrim, how he looks. And, um, it's just weird. There seems to be a lot of these mom and pop cafe, gas station restaurants on the middle of nowhere, um, on the highway. So ah, that's an aside, but the pilgrim shows up and they kind of like, what's going on with this guy? And anyways, they're talking to him and partway through the pilgrim sees a calendar when he's inside and he, he freaks out. He's like, well, what is that? Cause it's, um, it's a picture of like pilgrims on the calendar. And he's like, that's, that's what we look like. And, um, he sees the date that it says 1961 and he, he tells him he's from 1947. So anyways, um, they give him some penicillin tablets to, because he, he accidentally shot himself in the wrist when he was uh, dodging a truck on his way to the cafe. Anyways, he brings the, um, the penicillin back to his son and um, presumably his son gets healed because he finds some information in an encyclopedia and it's, it's an entry about his son who apparently founded some medical stuff in uh, California or something and that's where he's headed. So it was sort of interesting. At the end, the pilgrim guy, when he's given the medication to his wife to give to his son, um, he says, um, you know, we're going to make it and um, there's going to be all sorts of things in the future and, and we're responsible for that. So he kind of feels like, yeah, we're going to do it, and what we're doing is meaningful. So I like that a little bit. I'm going to give this three out of five um, turkey dinners. All right, next episode, the Rip Van Winkle caper. Thieves put themselves into suspended animation for 100 years after hiding a million dollars worth of gold bars. Wow. Yowzas. Four of us will be placed in a state of suspended animation. And when we wake up, that's when we'll take our gold and enjoy it. I say everybody takes his cut now and takes his own chances. But that ain't what we agreed on. We agreed we'd stash the gold here and then do whatever Farwell tells us to do. So far, he ain't been wrong. Not about anything. The gas he used to put a whole trainload of people to sleep. All we had to do was step over a lot of horizontal folks snoring. Transfer a fortune like it was cotton candy. Amen to that. Amen to that, sure. But how about to this? None of your mind being helpless and enclosed up in these? No, Mr. DeCruz. None of us mind. 
How long, Falwell? How long? I don't know exactly. I can only surmise. I would say that... I would say approximately 100 years from today's date. Bro, a hundred years? I mean, that's a bit overkill. So they, they rob this train in this episode. They get $100 million from it. And their logic is, well, that's a lot of money. We can't really spend it right now because things have got to cool down first. So this is basically them going on the lam. And they're like, yeah, 100 years ought to do it. It's like 100 years. You know how much stuff can change in 100 years? Uh, it seems like folly, obviously. Um, notice how uh, in this episode, again, the theme of... Um, characters were well they were able to accomplish something impressive um so with the theft and the cryogenics but their downfall um was being too greedy and unable to cooperate so this is kind of similar to a most unusual camera and the prime mover so this uh this theme of people being given a gift um or a great power or something and then just getting too greedy and screwing it up Okay, so this episode, I don't know, it's kind of interesting. Um, definitely worth seeing three out of five um, gold bars. Okay, next episode, The Silence. An aristocratic club member bets that a talkative acquaintance cannot stay silent for an entire year. Off a floor. Well, to make a long story short, he arrives at the busiest time of the morning, absolutely the busiest time. And he says to me, Jim, I've got an opportunity to corner the I just got your letter. Absolutely. Our young friend is discoursing again. Well, of course, I looked a little askance at him because the boor wouldn't know a corner of the market from a railroad roundhouse. The only thing worse than his talking so much is his transparency. In about 30 seconds, Alfred, he'll very nonchalantly ask for a loan from anybody with an earshot. As a matter of fact, just last week, he asked me for the loan of a quarter of a million dollars. The letter you sent me is the most incredible thing I've ever read. Archie, we're old friends. I must tell you that my communication to you, Alfred, was not as an old friend, but as my lawyer. Is the wager I have in mind legal? No wager is legal in this state. Well, is it against the law, then? Is there anything criminal in it? I don't see anything criminal in it, no. Alfred, that is exactly what I wanted to hear from you. Elitist pricks with too much money and time organize a preposterous, high-stakes, but otherwise meaningless bet that ends up ruining both of their pointless lives. So that's kind of what was happening in this one. Actually, it's based on an Anton Chekhov uh, short story that um, it's very short. It's like a couple pages long. You can read it on the Gutenberg Project. And um, it's pretty good. The short story is, is a bit different. Um, so this episode is kind of just loosely based on that. In the short story, there's like a bet. and um, But it's it's more like in the heat of passion, the bet. It's a bet about... Um, oh, uh, solitary confinement versus, like, can a man stand that? Is that worse than the death penalty? Anyways, and uh, the results are a bit different. The short story is a little more rich. Um, there's more contradictions in it. There's there's more conflict. 
And, um, but yeah, so this episode, it's okay. I guess I give it like two out of five rich pricks. All right, next one, Shadow Play. Trapped in a recurring nightmare, Adam Grant tries to persuade those who are sentencing him to death that the whole scenario is not real. Let me tell you something, Mr. Ritchie. How, how soundly do you sleep? What's that got to Well, I mean, you'll dream, don't you? Certainly, sometimes. Well, haven't you ever been hurt in one of those dreams? Haven't you ever fallen out of a window or, or been drowned or tortured? You have. Well, don't you remember how real that it seemed? Remember how you woke up screaming? Well, let me ask you something, Mr. Ritchie. How do you like to wake up screaming every night? That's what I do. Because I dream the same dream night after night after night. It's this one. It changes a little bit. The people get twisted around, but it's the same dream. You've got to believe me. I can't go on dying. I can't go on dying. I can't. I can't. I'm telling the truth, Mr. Ritchie. Please, let me live and I'll, I'll keep you alive. I'll dream you every night just like this. Wait a minute. I'll prove it to you. Your wife, she has a steak cooking for you. Go home, look in the oven. It'll be something else. Please. Totally brilliant episode. Um, so the main character, he is on, he's in a courtroom and he's just being uh, sentenced uh, to execution for murder. And um, he's he keeps recurring, has this, it's a dream. And he keeps having this recurring dream over and over again where he's being sentenced for murder. And then that night or the next day or whatever it is, he gets executed at midnight. And he tries to convince people um, that it's all a dream and tries to get them to stop it. But um, but it's fruitless. Like he never is able to stop it. And he just keeps reliving the same execution over and over again. Yeah, so this feels to me like um, a critique of capital punishment, but wrapped in a tense uh, fantasy story, you know, like a nightmare fantasy story. So think of the way the execution takes place over and over again, and the main character has to relive the horror of it um, every night. And this kind of parallels the horror inflicted by the state as it executes people over and over again. There's also a point in the story where the lead character is describing to another inmate on death row what it's like to be executed because he's been executed every night. And as he's describing it and he gets to the end of it, there's a quick cut to the district attorney's home where his wife is pulling these sizzling steaks out of the oven. So it's a very quick cut. Um, and it's as if it's suggesting that being executed, you're, you're like a piece of meat being, you know, annihilated in an oven. Um, so that made it, that kind of sealed it for me as like, oh yeah, it's a critique of capital punishment. Um, the fantasy, sci-fi fantasy, whatever concept is brilliant, reminds me, of course, of a Star Trek episode, Cause and Effect, um, where they just go through the time loop over and over again. Um... But, of course, it's a bit different. Uh, but I, I like how the main character is trying over and over again to convince everybody that it's just a dream and to try and break out of it. But it's completely fruitless. And he even acts like it's fruitless, too. Like like it's not going to work convincing them. So, 
So the episode starred um, Dennis Weaver, who was uh, an actor, but obviously, but he was um, head of the Screen Actors Guild for a little while. And Harry Towns um, played the district attorney. He's a kind of a, he's recurring in some Twilight Zone episodes. He's pretty good. I like him. Um, I give this one five out of five sizzling steaks. All right, next one up, The Mind and the Matter, a book on the power of thought enables an irritable worker to recreate the world exactly as he wants it. But what he wants and what's he, what he gets are two different things. If I had my way, here's how I'd fix the universe. I'd eliminate the people. I mean, cross them off, get rid of them, destroy them, decimate them. And there'd only be one man left, me, Archibald Beechcroft Esquire. Uh, so, not a very good episode. I'm not huge on this one. Um, main character, he's irritable. I can get behind that. Um, he doesn't. He, he reads some book, and he gets this powerful mind, and he's able to make changes, physical changes in the world. And he's kind of unimaginative, because all he does is get rid of all the people, and then he gets a little bored. So he brings people back, but he makes them just like him. So um, he doesn't like that because he's, he's irritating. And so then he gives up and he just returns to how it was before. It's like, bro, you have the power to do anything you want now. You're like omnipotent. And you come up with two possibilities and then you're like, eh, I'll just give it all up. <laughs> it's just a little empty. Um, closing monologue. Uh, it says, uh, with all its faults, this may be the best of all possible worlds. I don't really like this theme of, hey, the world's got some problems, but it's pretty good, huh? Yeah, I can understand why they would think that in the, you know, the 1960s, because the world's getting better. He came out of World War II, post-war boom, you know, um, and there's problems in the world, of course, and they have Vietnam and all that and Cold War, but um, things are getting progressively better, especially for the middle class and that. So I can understand, but... Yeah, I don't buy it now. In 2020, I don't buy it, that's for sure. So I give this one two out of five middling episodes. Next episode, will the real Martian please stand up? State troopers follow tracks from an unidentified flying object to a diner where they try to determine which of the seven bus passengers stranded inside is really a Martian. Driver, um... You got a passenger manifest? Passenger manifest? What do you think I got parked out there, a 707? Mister, that's a 14-year-old bus and business is lousy. My boss would run rum across the border if there was a profit in it. I don't ask passengers their names. We kiss them gently and help them in. We're that glad to have them, with or without names. You know how many you had? Six. Unless one of them fell out the window when we hit a bump. I picked up six, and I'm supposed to deliver six. Nobody fell out. Somebody must have jumped in. There are uh, seven here now. Yeah, so this one, hmm, it's okay. Not a bad little episode. It's nothing great, but it's worth watching. So these two state troopers um, are checking out in the snowstorm this 
this disturbance and it turns out to be uh, like a I don't know a, a UFO that landed and there's footprints leading to a diner so the setup is that there's a diner and there's a bunch of there's a bus outside and the bus had six passengers plus a driver and in the diner um, there are seven passengers and the bus driver and so they're like well what's what's going on um, one of them must be the Martian and then so they spend the episode um, accusing each other of being the Martian and then at the end you you know you're waiting around to find out who do you think the Martian is and then at the end it gets revealed who the Martian is so yeah it's okay I mean you could skip this one it would be fine but it's a it's kind of a fun little episode so typically you get um the tropes of different types of people you get the elitist prick he's like a businessman he has a lot of money i don't know why he's riding this dumpy bus you get the aging exotic dancer which always seems to come up in these kind of movies i guess they had a lot of i don't know anyways um you get a young couple uh, and you get an older couple that bickers a lot. Um, I don't remember what else you get. But basically, there's a bunch of tropes of regular people. So it's okay. I give this one three out of five tropes of regular people. Okay, next episode. The Obsolete Man. In a future state where religion and books have been banned, a librarian, Burgess Meredith, is judged obsolete by the Chancellor, Fritz Weaver, and sentenced to death. I'll ask you again your occupation. I am a librarian, sir. That is my occupation. That is my profession. If you people choose to call that obsolete... Request clarification of the term? Yes, the term, uh, Mr. Wordsworth. You people, you make reference to the state? I make reference to the state. And you persist in declaring your occupation as being that of a librarian. Is that correct? That is correct, sir. A librarian. Having to do with books. Yes, sir. Books. Since there are no more books, Mr. Wordsworth, there are no more libraries. And, of course, it follows that there is very little call for the services of a librarian. Case in point, a minister. A minister would tell us that his function is that of preaching the word of God. And, of course, it follows that since the state has proven that there is no God, that would make the function of a minister somewhat academic as well. There is a God. You are in error, Mr. Wordsworth. There is no God. All right, so this one is their uh, compulsory, we don't like totalitarian uh, social systems episode. And um, I think the the ending narration by Sterling, uh, the full narration, I'm just going to read that here because that kind of sums up the theme. The Chancellor, the late Chancellor, was only partly correct. He was obsolete, but so is the state, the entity he worshipped. Any state, entity, or ideal ideology becomes obsolete when it stockpiles the wrong weapons, when it captures territories but not mines, when it enslaves millions but convinces nobody, when it is naked yet pulls on armor and calls it faith, while in the eyes of God it has no faith at all, any state, any entity, any ideology which fails to recognize the worth, 
the dignity, the rights of man, the state is obsolete. A case to be filed under M for mankind. Yeah, so basically they're saying like, hey, uh, you know, the, the people are important, not the, the state. So um, anyways, you get it. I just read it. But um, th- that was a monologue that, that never actually aired. The one that aired was shorter than that. It cut out a big middle section. Um, but you get the idea. Um, the main thrust of it is really just that one line, which is uh, any state, any entity, any ideology which fails to recognize the worth, the dignity, the rights of man, the state is obsolete. That's what's important. So this episode, yeah, it was okay. I mean, it's not really my cup of tea, but um, it was it was a good... It was well done, I guess. It had a good setting, good mood to it, too. It was all dark, and there was these really stark, um, really long table where the guy's being judged at the beginning, and, you know, he's in a spotlight and all this. It was, it was pretty cool. I give this one four out of five 1984s. So that's the final episode of uh, season two of The Twilight Zone. This season, you know, not a lot of top-notch episodes, a lot of low to middling episodes, you know, I would say twos and threes out of four, out of fives, um, nothing really great, I think I only had two five out of five episodes, and a couple maybe of four out of fives, and the rest were twos and threes, so not really well done, hopefully we'll do better in season three. Thank you for listening today. Check out the show notes for this episode or any episode on my website at ptpod.xyz. The show notes contain the links to all my sources and products that were referenced in the episode. You can write a glowing review of my podcast on iTunes or Google Play. There are handy-dandy links in the menu on my website at ptpod.xyz. And you can support me on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash PT Pod. The intro music for today's episode was Sweeter Vermouth, courtesy of Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. Check out the link in the show notes.